friends, and welcome to the first episode of the first season of the Christchurch Midweek Podcast. We're excited that you're joining with us. We are kicking off 2023 in a series called Binge the Bible. We are reading the entire Bible in six months. Our first week has concluded, and we read Genesis chapter 1 to 35, and this past Sunday we focused in on Genesis chapter 6, the first few verses there, ending in verse 9 that says Noah walked with God. The sermon was walking with God and we kind of traced the this feature of Noah back into Enoch in chapter 5 and verse 24 and then into the story of God coming after Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, walking with the evening breeze or in the cool of the day and his pursuit of Adam and Eve regardless and in despite of their their sin and their fall. And so the whole storyline of the Bible follows God's pursuit of humanity and his grace towards people, his promise to bring out a redeemer and to make for himself a people perfected and in a perfect place where he will dwell with them and walk with them and gives us a sense of the world that we live in and the evidence of evil and the internal struggle of, of sin and temptation in each of our lives and the impact that has on other people. But the invitation is to, to walk with God. He makes that possible through the covenants, and we'll trace those as we go through the Old Testament and ultimately the fulfillment of the New Testament through the life, death, and resurrection of God's Messiah, Jesus. And so this is kind of what we've been talking about. Obviously, we can't, we can't get through 36 chapters of Genesis in one 40-minute Sunday sermon, and there's also a lot of questions that arise out of these uh, first few chapters of Genesis especially, and so this podcast gives us an opportunity to respond to the questions people in our Christchurch community are asking and gives me an opportunity to talk about things that I would have loved to preach about but don't have the time to, and of course next week we're moving on uh, right into the Joseph story and then uh, through the Exodus, so lot great pace and it's going to be exciting. So I wanted to jump right in, and today I'm joined by Bill Mayer, who is our Worship and Tech Director, and so he'll be jumping in the conversation a little bit. Hey, everybody. And I have a handful of questions that I received in person, but in the future, I would love to have your questions in writing. That way I can address them uh, very specifically. So if you want to submit questions throughout the series, you can send them to me via email, jesse at joinedwithjesus.org. And of course, I spell my name correctly. That would be J-E-S-S-E at joinedwithjesus.org. If you put an I in there, I will not get your email. So uh, the questions that I received this week uh, were in reference to things like uh, dinosaurs. Where Where is the evidence of dinosaurs in the Bible? And what are we to make of the fossil record? And what does that tell us about uh young earth creationism, old earth creationism, uh, synchronicity between the creation narrative and biological evolution as espoused by Charles Darwin. And I'm sure you guys have had lots of questions like this. And the internet is filled with people who have pontificated at great length about their particular view on these issues, but I'll give you my perspective. And some questions about uh, the Nephilim that I referenced in the Sunday sermon and uh, what role they played and who they were and how they resulted in the the men of renown in the Old Testament. Had some questions about the interaction between Lot and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and the offering of his two daughters. That was very troubling if you were reading along. Uh, the story of Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, um, and the obvious hypocrisy that goes along with 
uh, her being found with child as a widow and the readiness to destroy her because of her sin only to find out that uh, Judah had visited who he thought was a prostitute and had become the father of Tamar's baby and so there's that little interaction. Uh, one that I was really passionate about and wanted to actually preach a sermon on was uh, Jacob's Ladder and Jacob wrestles with a man at the Jabbok River. And uh, we talked about that in our staff meeting yesterday and I'd like to chat a little bit about that on the podcast as well. So hopefully you find this conversation interesting and maybe answer some of your questions. I'm sure you'll have more unanswered questions. Um, and so I invite those. Uh, if, if they're able to be addressed further on in the podcast series, we'll do that. But we are moving on, along at a, an alarming pace. And I will prefer uh, the questions each week to the material that we've covered. So uh, let's jump in. Dinosaurs, where do they come from? There, there is no uh, record uh, in the creation narrative of the creation of dinosaurs in particular. And yet in our fossil record, we have evidence of enormous creatures that once roamed the earth and brings into sharp contrast the question of how old is our earth and what was going on uh, at what particular times and what does the Bible tell us about and what does it not? Now, there are a couple um, fantastic beasts that are mentioned in the Bible, Leviathan uh, being one, and uh, the idea there's a kind of a great uh, sea monster that's Leviathan and then also a, a great land monster that's referenced in other places. So the idea that there were um, creatures that maybe aren't on our planet now but were on the planet then and were created by God and did have a time period on the planet um, is evident in the scripture. But it brings about a larger question, and that is, um, how do we read the Bible? The, the scriptures are not given to us as a revelation of everything that happened and when and how and why. The scriptures are a presentation of what is important in understanding who we are, why we are here, and where we came from. And so the Genesis is an origin story, and that is important, but it doesn't tell us everything that there is to be known. And so there's a lot that's left unsaid. In fact, the scriptures tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the original Hebrew, there's kind of this intimation of these are the generations of the earth. And it's kind of telling you the growth story, the history of what happened in this earth realm. But there's also this whole other realm of the heavens that's quite enigmatic through the scripture. Where, where did Satan come from? When was his fall? Was, was he an angel of light that we see later referenced in scripture in Isaiah 14, the prophetic kind of um, judgment against the arrogance of the king of Babylon? And is that meant to be a picture of what was happening in heaven before earth was created? And the third of the stars that fell referenced in Revelation. And so there's this whole other story of what God was doing in another realm at another time and how that intersects with our story that isn't given to us in great detail in the Bible. And the same is actually true for the, um, the ancient history of the earth and its formation and all of the stages that it went through. The scriptures don't pretend to or explain everything that can be known about our world. And so part of being a human, of being God's image bearer on the planet, is to not only steward the environment and the the natural resources of our world as we find them and to bring order to chaos and dominion to anarchy and to be stewards of this great planet. But it's also to recognize that there is a lot that we don't know and to use the faculties of being made in God's image to determine what those things are. And so there's great um, benefit to the practices of understanding um, ancient paleontology and fossil records. And um, the issue that we face, though, for a lot of people is in our age of modernism 
and kind of post-Darwinian biological evolution that's aimed at providing an explanation for everything that doesn't have God as its origin is that the narrative tells us that, you know, we are here by accident, that we are a biological anomaly, that um, the chance of life is almost nil, and yet here it is. And so uh, millions and millions or billions of years must have transpired in the creation of um, the universe and all that started with some kind of unknown big bang and are we on some cycle of starting and stopping or really we have no idea so there's more we don't know than we do know but as Christians uh, we, we rely on general revelation what we can observe from the world that's around us through the five senses that God has given us and with the faculties of human ingenuity and we also rely on special revelation we need to know what God has told us that we wouldn't otherwise know except through divine revelation. And we put those two things together and they're not at odds with one another. And so there's a hostility in a lot of Christian people against uh, the sciences and history. And a lot of people who just deny the fact that dinosaurs ever existed or some of them would go so far as to say that they still exist and they're, they're in the Congo. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff that you'll find on the internet perspectives that people have. But it's important for us that we recognize what the Bible is and isn't. And so we're not going to get every answer to all of our questions in the scriptures, but we are going to find in the scriptures everything that pertains to life and godliness and a framework by which we can interpret the world that involves the God who made everything. And so our faith and our science can go hand in hand. And in fact, all early scientists were people of faith, and they predicated science on the fact that God made a world with good order. And so if you go back and read... Um, Newton, Edison, a lot of these guys were, you know, they, they're, they're expecting the world to work the way it does because God made it. And it's only in um, later generations that uh, we've kind of come to this idea that we as humans can understand everything through our modern intellect and through our senses and through science. And there is no God and it's all kind of an atheistic biological evolution. And so that's just not the case. So I don't have answers for you. Uh, except to say that God is brilliant and creative and has been doing things long before we existed and has told us the things that we need to know that pertain to us. And, you know, he has a plan and a purpose. And I even think, I don't know what that is, but even as I seek to interpret what is and what can be known, and you think about uh, what we know about, you know, the Cambrian explosion and life on earth and when this happened and what the earth was like, uh, it's important that we recognize that the world in which we live now is quite different from the world as it existed in its early stages. And so when we have this perception that everything is as it's always been, then we can kind of use a scientific method to look back into history and imagine what things were like. And this is what carbon dating does, for instance. So as long as the decay rate is the same now as it was then, we can know everything there is about time and we can come up with these time estimates. But if that decay rate changes, well, then your time frame changes. And there's really no way for us to know those things. We can't really apply scientific principles to history because history is the sequence of things that do not reoccur the exact same way. And science is the way of uh, predicting the future based on things being the same way they are all the time. And so I just want to warn everybody against trying to have a godless, evolutionary, biological, scientific approach to history and think that you're going to find every explanation or that the Bible is going to give you every answer to every question. In fact, it's our, it's our prerogative as humans to look into these things and to determine them, but uh, in a concept of faith. So, great question. I, I feel like, um, especially, like, I'd love to know if there were dinosaurs and when they roamed the Earth and if there's aliens and if they're on other planets. 
but I feel like a lot of people, uh, like they, they claim that this is like necessary to faith. Like I've heard a lot of people on the discovery channel in the last 10 years say, well, if we prove there's aliens, uh, well then we'll disprove the Bible. Like that's their intention by finding aliens. And so I, I just wholeheartedly agree with, um, the, you know, dinosaurs and aliens would be great to know about, but they're not essential parts of our faith. Like, uh, you know, God created, he could have created aliens. He could have created dinosaurs, but like we are made in God's image. God died for us. And that's our gospel and pertains to our life and well-being spiritually. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it, it also like the whole alien question really does elevate depending on your answer to that question, which we don't have an answer to. Uh, we want to have like a, a really high view of humanity in, in a godless, modernistic, biological, evolutionary mind frame humanity, we're just the smartest monkey, right? We're just like an enigma, an anomaly. And the fact that we have self-awareness is kind of like, oh, that's interesting. But a lot of times too, there's this like uh, perception that humanity is somehow a scourge on the real value, which is the planet and environments and species. And we, we mess things up by uh, bringing disease from continent to continent. And we're, we ruin um, beautiful species that took, you know, millions of years to evolve. And now we've ex- brought them to extinction by, you know, bringing a rat or a cat on a boat to a, another part of the, of the world. And um, that's, a, that's a philosophy. That's an ideology that says that humanity is a problem that our world is facing. We're like a cancer. And our faith from the scriptures tell us, no, actually the crowning creation of God made in his image and made to represent him on the planet. And part of that is stewarding it well. And so it's important that we take good care of our planet. And the more knowledge we have about ways we can mess this planet up, we ought to use that to make changes. And that's like a, like a, a high Christian ethic. And so I think we really should value our planet in a way that uh, some people on the right don't and some people on the left do. But we also don't want to idolize the planet to the point where we see, you know, less humans is good and uh, less inhabited planet is good. And no, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so we've got to, we got to bring those two things together. And the alien question is that very thing. Like, okay, if we are the only intelligent life in the universe, well, that says something really important about, hey, God made this, this enormous universe with this tiny little kind of insignificant planet called earth around this kind of mediocre little sun and this little galaxy in the corner so that he could have a place to dwell with mankind. And he very well could have 10,000 other planets that are similar to Earth in this expansive universe that we may or may never find out about. And he's a big God. And so if we have him figured out, he's not very big. Um, But it also helps us to have this understanding that um, there can be synchronicity to what we know and what God has revealed uh, that doesn't stand in opposition to itself. But we don't want to treat the Bible like it's a scientific textbook. You know, that it's not a justification for everything scientifically. It is a revelation about the God who made everything. And so it should synchronize with what we perceive and can deduce, but it also can't answer all of our questions. It reminds me of like angels, like angels are intelligent beings. Like, you know, half a third of them decided that they didn't want to worship with the Lord and fell. And, and two thirds of them are still they're worshiping God in all of his glory, but they're, they're also intelligent beings. Like they had that choice to follow or not follow the Lord. And, um, it's like there, there could be intelligent life elsewhere, but I feel like Paul makes it clear, like Christ died once for sins and it's like for our sins, for us. Like, so Jesus wasn't like, he didn't become a man somewhere else also and die for another 
species on a different planet. Like it happened one time for us. And that's like our faith that we live in, that God came down to be with us. So just, just like there could be intelligent life, but like the, like to root it and center it in our faith and revealed by scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the story we have. I mean, the revelation we have that tells us what we know uh, doesn't reference any of those things. So they're great things to hypothesize about is to continue researching and uh, to one day come into that knowledge if it indeed it exists, but uh, in no way as a threat to our faith. Which brings us, though, to the next kind of topic, which is the Nephilim that we reviewed briefly on Sunday as we read through the early verses of Genesis chapter 6. Uh, who were the Nephilim and um, what is what is going on here? They, they're said to have been on the earth at that time and also later. And so however they came to be, they came to be on both sides of a worldwide flood that destroyed all of humanity except for the descendants of Noah. And so there's a lot of debate about, okay, what are the Nephilim? It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word. And so instead of trying to find an English word or a Greek word to express what this word meant to its original readers, it becomes transliterated. And so that doesn't carry meaning beyond the meaning that was understood by the people who knew what it meant when it was written. And so that is some ambiguity for us. And lots of people posit that. And on the more rationalistic side, the idea that the sons of God uh, were merely powerful men who were in a position of authority, um, and they just decided to take it upon themselves to have as many women or wives as they wanted. And that was the thing being referenced there. And that's kind of like on the rationalistic side, the non-supernatural side. And on the far other end of the spectrum is the sons of God would represent an entire different class of beings, like angelic beings. And there's some sort of um, inner world intermarriage between uh, kind of partially divine beings or extraordinary uh, angelic beings with women. And so what's born in that union are these, you know, demigods. Uh, and, and there's... There's uh, stories in most ancient cultures that tie into this kind of concept that in, in some ancient history there were um, supermen, essentially. And uh, you're going to see that when we get into um, the conquest in Joshua um, and at the end of uh, Numbers where the spies go into the land and what they observe they report as giants. And so do you say, are these giants? Are these just people that because you're afraid they seem bigger than you? Or... You know, is it like all of the Israelites, the men were on average five feet, six inches tall, and they went into a, a race of men who on average were six feet, two inches tall, and they felt like giants. Like, what's the explanation there? But the reference in Genesis 6 says that these this union occurred before the flood, and this union occurred after the flood, and it resulted in these incredible men of renown, um, warriors, um, dominion makers, whatever. Um, and so there's obviously a spectrum of belief on who those people were. The, the picture there is, you know, some kind of unholy union where the purposes of God are being breached. And this brings two important points up as we read Genesis. Actually, three. <clears throat> One of those important points is the fact that God has a divine order, and that order is broken continually. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to read the Bible and think that it justifies all sorts of evil. So God in Genesis 2 goes to great length to show that marriage is a union of two um, members of a species created in specific complementary genders meant to be in a lifelong monogamous covenant 
that is brought together and expressed in the sexual union and that results in fruitfulness in children. And that is God's design. And then very early in the scripture we read, O Lamech took two wives. And that is not as a justification for polygamy. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, any men of means or power took multiple wives. By the time you get to Solomon, who's kind of the ideal king, um, God's like perfect person, well, he has a thousand women. And so this is not a good thing. And so if you read the Old Testament and you go, oh man, this is a really patriarchal environment and you know, there's polygamy and there's rape and there's all these, uh, these things that seem to just be said as though that was what was going on. Well, it is what was going on, but it doesn't make it good. Um, and so you have to start to read the scriptures to understand from the beginning, what was God's purpose and design? What did he call good? What did he make pre-fall and how ought that to be expressed? And then where is it celebrated when it is treasured? And then where is it um, condemned where it is abused? And so um, some people will use that as a justification against the scriptures. It's misogynistic. It's patriarchal. It, um, because they see that as a good thing. But it's not a good thing. Never was a good thing. Um, and it's important to recognize that. And the, 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 the Nephilim and the sons of God and the daughters of men represents one of those unholy unions outside of uh, God's plan. And so it's important to recognize that. And it happens on both sides of the flood. Um, so that's one of the main issues. The other thing that we want to understand is that the world, again, the world in its ancient form was very different than the world in which we live now. And it's important to recognize that. God doesn't tell us everything that was going on all the time. And people who were recording these stories and sharing them orally, and then Moses who recorded them uh, the time period that he did, um, they're, they're referencing a world that existed that's quite different than ours. And it's okay to recognize that the world was different. Uh, it wasn't exactly the same as it's always been. Um, and even though those things aren't happening now, there aren't dinosaurs roaming the earth. Uh, there aren't angelic or powerful beings mating with women. It's not impossible to see that those things could have happened and were reported to have happened. And, and that that is part of our kind of ancient history. And so uh, there is that, again, that impulse, that modernistic, humanistic impulse to eliminate anything that seems fantasaical or supernatural. Um, but that is really something of a later development and not something that humans throughout history have had a hard time with until our generation. So if you find yourself going, man, that's really hard to swallow. That's hard to believe. That seems like a, a Tolkien novel more than uh, reality. Well, that may be your bias uh, when, in fact, who knows what was going on back then. There's more that we don't know than we do know. And so I think there's a... A humility that we should have as we read the Bible to go, uh, okay, that this is what God said is good, and therefore this thing that is happening is evil, and we can call it evil, and we should read it in the story as evil. That's important. And then secondly, hey, the world, the ancient world was very different than our world is now. I mean, even you think about adaptation and species, you know, uh, 250 years ago, there was like eight species of dogs, and now you can have a Great Dane or a Labradoodle or uh, a teacup chihuahua, like all of these came from the same set of ancestors. And so if you go back thousands of years or tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years onto our planet and rewind the tape, like the, the animals that became the animals that we're looking at now would have looked significantly different. Even the question about what animals were on the ark and did this really happen? And, you know, it doesn't take much to seed a planet. Yeah, this is kind of the story. God puts... Uh, animals by their kinds and then they flourish and they spread out and they adapt to different environments and so you end up with a great variety of of life on the earth and the same thing for humanity I mean we are a one human race but all of these different ethnicities and languages and 
body types and facial features. And, and it's just the, the beauty of the way that God designed life to work. He wants a, a world filled with variety. And, um, and that's part of his purpose. And so just recognizing as you rewind the tape and as you're reading something that is from book, the prehistory of humankind and carried down to us through these oral traditions, that it was different. It's also important to recognize that the origin story of Genesis exists in ancient literature among other origin stories. And Moses, who gives us the, the five books of the Old Testament, um, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, the Tanakh, um, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house and was given this uh, incredible education. And so he's a, a, a man who is exposed to Mesopotamian and Sumerian and Egyptian and, and Babylonian origin stories. And he takes that information and then with divine revelation, which he received and is reported to have received, um, he is now offering a story from God that has a lot of these same elements. And so, you know, there's also this kind of history channel push to like make the Bible equivocable to others or copying other origin stories. And so that a lot of those exist and they're worth reading and you'll see a lot of similarities, um, which we're going to get to when we talk about Jacob and wrestling the man at the Jabbok River and in different ways. Um, but, but the story that we're getting may be similar and may have connections to other ancient Near Eastern origin stories, but it's God's story and it's divinely inspired and it's other. And so we need to see it as similar and expressive, but also set apart. Yeah. Like something on the inside of me, every time we mention like, oh, it's similar to these other origin stories. It was like, oh, that's not right. That's like, that doesn't feel good. Like God's not like that. But uh, it's like funny because I th if I think about it, I really think like, you know, God created everything and then you know satan's only option is to counterfeit things so there's like more or less like everybody's got a flood story but we know the real flood is like in noah like with how the bible depicts these things to us and shares it with us that like you know all these other stories could have been twisted in a certain way throughout history and then like god's giving us the real revelation of what his perspective was yeah that's good and and conversely in the same way that like uh, the world we live in that's hostile to Christianity in the 21st century, the 20th century, last last century, for those of us who are alive in it, um, will take the evidence that there are other stories like the Bible to say, look, it's just one of many, and there's no reason it's special, and these are things that people thought, and they're just ancient people who thought of things and came up with these mythologies to explain the world they lived in, and the Hebrews were one of those people, and so it just kind of goes into this category, scientific category, this historic category of you know, origin story mythology. But that's not the case. That's not what the Bible actually claims. These other origin stories, they don't, they don't have the same divine uh, origin. They're not claiming to be authoritative and from God and a revelation of God to a people and then to all people. And so it can be really strengthening to your faith also to consider like, okay, there are, there are scientists that tell us, oh, there's no way there was a worldwide flood. That can't happen. Scientifically, that can't happen. And so it is, didn't happen. And maybe there was this little Mesopotamian flood, and it seemed like the whole world to the people who were in it. And so that's that whole scientific overtaking the historic. But the, the fact that we have the flood story in the scriptures, and it's explained to us its reason, its purpose, and the way in which God brought humanity through that, salvifically through Noah and his descendants, and the reason why we still have people today 
the fact that that's echoed in so many other cultures ought to really be a, an encouragement to you that people of Chinese, Asian uh, descent, they have, they have flood stories and people of Middle Eastern descent have flood stories and even Native Americans who came all the way through Russia and across the Bering Strait and in the, through Alaska and populated the far corners of the earth carried with them these same type of origin stories and flood narratives. And, and so the fact that humankind has been carrying these tales for so long and in so many different ways tells you that, that these have like some element of truth to them. And then to have that understanding combined with a special revelation that says it's from God who made these things and did these things um, ought to really strengthen your faith and not tear it down. Which brings us kind of to the next little section here. Um, We tend to, again, in our modernism that we are all swimming in, we tend to have this belief, this perception, that uh, because of our technology, we, as it species are now smarter than our predecessors. So we look back in time and we imagine early humans as being Neanderthals banging uh, a rock on a shellfish to try to eat and grunting at one another. And so we imagine this kind of um, evolution of the human mind from early and dull and dim-witted to late and a genius and technologically advanced. And that is not true. That is not true at all. We do have the benefit of standing on the shoulders of multiple generations and experiencing the exponential explosion of technology since the industrial age. Uh, The last 200 and 250 years for humanity has been an incredible explosion of technology by which we all benefit. But our, our predecessors in ancient history were just as brilliant as humans are today. There's a bunch of very, very smart people on the planet, very, very insightful, wise people on the planet, and people of average intelligence uh, in every generation. And the stories that we're looking into, and as, as you examine um, Moses, as you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're gonna, you're gonna see Moses is a brilliant person. And he exists in a world that was filled with other brilliant people. And while they did not benefit from technology the way that we do today, they're in this kind of like post-Bronze Age era of human development, it doesn't mean that they were simple-minded or stupid or, or the things that they thought were just false because they didn't have access to the knowledge we have. And so don't think just because you can Google something that we as a people are smarter than our predecessors. It's important that we, that we understand that. And as you have this expectation that you're dealing with uh, literature that is just phenomenally well-written and brilliant in its poetry and its prose, very, very carefully thought out and planned, and that builds upon itself, uh, you're going to have a much higher expectation of what you're interacting with and what you're reading. And so again, I'm trying to humble us a little bit from our natural pride and arrogance that exists in our technological age and kind of counteract that humanistic, godless spirit that kind of hangs over us in modernity that we tend not to think about. And so that's where these questions of origin stories, dinosaurs, Nephilim, ancient history, uh, the, the term for before the flood is antediluvian. What was going on before the flood? How different was the world? We don't know, but it seems to be very different and it's okay for it to be that way. And we're not going to have all of our questions answered, but we do have the information that we need to make sense of the world in which we live. 
and to understand God as he's revealed himself to us. So that's kind of the, the early parts of some of the Genesis questions that we received. Let's talk about uh, Lot's daughters, okay? So this is this interaction where um, God's going God's gonna to judge and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their great evil. And Lot is living there in Sodom, and he's raised his family there. And so God is sending these angels in to warn Lot so that he can escape, but Lot doesn't want to escape. Um, and so these angels come in to, to the town square there, and Lot sees them. At this point, he is sitting at the gate, we're told. Um, you'll recall the movement of Lot after he and Abram had both grown so wealthy that their herdsmen were fighting. And so Abram gives Lot the choice of where he wants to go. And he says, let's separate so we're not fighting with each other. And Lot moves towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And that little story ends with saying that Lot um, pitched his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's living on the outside of town, but he's looking towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's some allure there and some desire there for the city life. And then the next thing we hear about Lot, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's moved from being a tent dweller outside of the city, and now he's associated as a foreigner with the city. And by the time you get to the story where the angels come to warn Lot and his family, it says that he's sitting at the gate. So he's a foreigner, but he's made his all the way. He's made his way into politics at this point, and he's a, at least a leading person of the city. And so the angels come in, and they're going to stay the night in the square, and they're there to have this conversation uh, with Lot, and um, he urges them not to stay in the city square, but to come into his home. And so the men of the city come and are demanding that Lot give up these uh, foreigners so that they can have sex with them. And so there's this like, whoa, that, that's, that's vicious and violent and evil. And, and then what's really catching you off guard is when Lot says, don't do this evil thing. You're like, yeah, absolutely. And then he says, here, take my virgin daughters instead and do with them as you please and your jaw should be on the floor when you read this. And, um, and that is actually the point. That is the point. The, the whole point of this is this city has become so evil, like the story in Genesis 6, the whole earth had become so evil, that it has gathered God's attention to the point where he is now going to intervene in divine uh, judgment, totalitarian destruction. That's the point that the evil has reached. And so that's the whole story of this. And Lot although said to be righteous in the sense that he had a right relationship with God through faith in what he knew, is so engulfed and connected to the city that he is, he has this vexation, we're told later in the New Testament, about what's going on, the evil of the city, which we see in his pleading with these men not to, to assault these guests that are in his home. But he has, he has um, given in to the culture to the extent that he is seeing his own daughters as um, property that he owns and is offering them to be sexually abused by the the townsmen, and so this is like really staggering and really disheartening. But it's it's supposed to be that way. Um, that's what you're supposed to get. You're supposed to get how in the world um, is this okay? And you see the influence of the godless on the godly, and that's the struggle. This is the even as as we get, um, you know, Lot doesn't want to go, his daughters don't want to go, his wife doesn't want to go, the sons-in-law don't leave, the ones that his daughters are either engaged to or other daughters that he has that are married, um, they don't want to go, they don't believe that this judgment is coming, they don't respond in faith. Lot, his two daughters and his wife do, and then when she turns around, she turns to a pillar of salt and there's a judgment there on her for having her heart still in the city, so she's leaving reluctantly, not by faith. And what happens next is... Um, Lot's daughters decide to get pregnant by their father, and um, there's some terrible, terrible things going on, but you can see 
the distance and the strife that comes between trying to live in two worlds. And that's, that's what Lot represents. That's what Lot's wife represents. In fact, Jesus only says to remember two people, and one of them is Lot's wife. He says, remember Lot's wife. Give careful thought to the fact that when you are trying to follow God but your heart is elsewhere, this is what happens to you. And so don't miss the opportunity to experience God's salvation by looking back. That was the point. And so that is that is an atrocity. And so if you read that and thought, this is despicable, that is what you should read. And in fact, a big part of God's early work in humanity is to bring salvation and righteousness into a very, very, very dark world. Now, two things I want to say about that. Number one, our world is actually still quite dark. There is a lot of evil that goes on in the world. A lot of it goes on in other countries. We are blessed to live in a country that has sought to build a political and legal system around the revelation of scripture and around principles of human dignity and freedom and equality. And so we have the benefit of living in a world where there is law and order and where there is justice and where there is great restraint on evil. And yet there are there are corners of America where evil, evil things are continuing to happen and they're not punished and they're not caught and they're not stopped. And so um, it's important that we recognize that. And many of the people that you interact with, you will be, you, you would be shocked to find out some of the horrors that they have lived through. And it's just not something that we always talk about. And so it is important that we recognize that great evil is still happening in the world and to varying degrees across the globe. And it is incumbent upon the people of God to at least begin by standing up and saying, good is good and evil is evil. And then doing what we can uh, to enforce good and to restrain evil. And that is part of uh, the human call. And so that, that, is, that is true. And so there are evil things happening in the world and we need to recognize that. Secondarily though, we live on a planet that is now influenced by the revelation and ministry of Jesus. And what God has been doing is actually changed the world. And so when you rewind the tape, obviously there's some things in Genesis that stand out to you as a great evil. And if you look back into history, you'll see that there was lots of evil things that were going on. In fact, the world was a very violent and war-ridden place century upon century. There was very little peace on the earth. But when Jesus came and the church was established, what you end up seeing in history, if you study it, is it's the early Christians who begin to preserve life and to rescue infants who are left out to die in exposure. It's early Christians who start the first hospitals to minister to the sick instead of putting them out to die and trying to self-preserve. It's early Christians uh, who are doing welfare programs and feeding the hungry and giving of their own selves. And the world that we live in with all of its charity and kindness, and this is really important as I talk to anybody who's listening who's on the left end of the political spectrum and calls themselves a Christian, this is the good stuff that um, more progressive people think of and look at and go, yes, that is Christian, that is good. The danger there is this is something that's meant to be evoked from the inside out through a faith in God and not compelled through government. And so that's a lot of where our conversation ends up is what's the role of government in bringing about these good things. And the problem we're living in presently is it's very we're very quick to see it is government's job or people in power's job or people with money's responsibility to bring about all of these goods. And that is not actually the biblical story. The biblical story is it's a willingness to self-sacrifice for others. And as you come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, you take on his character and become a person who is others-centered, who is generous, who is self-sacrificing because that's the nature and character of God. 
And the world that we're all aiming towards is one in which every human heart is oriented toward God this way and living in a world where there's always enough and there's always acceptance and there's always belonging, there's always forgiveness and there's always generosity and there's always enough because we're all living in this way. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's where all this is going. And so we are going to see that throughout human history. And so it should look really, 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 really dark in a godless world in Genesis chapter 6, so bad that God regrets it. It grieved him to his heart. He decided he's going to blot out all humanity. That's really bad. And then we're going to see that happening as a contrast between what God is creating for himself a new people who are going to look different, be distinctive, represent God on the earth in contrast to the culture that is uh, violent and misogynistic and patriarchal. And that's meant to actually bring into stark contrast evil and good. So part of God's creation of Israel is to do that very thing. And he highlights things like faith and trust and the revelation of God and his will and his purposes and what is good and what is evil unfolds over history slowly. And so there's some things that Abraham does and Isaac does and Jacob does that are evil and faithless and fear-driven. And you're supposed to see that and go, oh, these are not perfect people and these are not representing God's heart. And the further down the storyline you get, the more God fills this out. This happens in the law, Ten Commandments. This happens in um, the, the, the sacrificial system and uh, all the, in Leviticus, we're going to see this, the difference, the distinction between defiled and undefiled, clean and unclean, sick and whole and healthy. And, and this is what God is doing to create a, a sharp contrast. This is a little bit of light shining into a dark world. But by the time you get to Jesus, it's shine, the sun is, is dawning. And so Jesus is, is opening up the nature and character of God and what that means for humanity in ways that no one had ever seen before. And this is what was attractive to many people about Jesus. We're told he was not physically attractive, but when he spoke, his words had authority and he revealed things that people did not know and that made sense of and expanded on the light that God had shed into the world thus far. And so as you read the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of darkness mixed with light. And you're even going to see among the people of God, great evil happening. You're going to see this descent into judges when we get to judges where you have this people that God has built for himself, but there is no central ruler and king to bring uh, goodness through authority, through rule. And so the world is declining and it gets really, 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 really evil, even among the people of God. And so the light is beginning to be dark. And so this is kind of the, the transition from a God-led theocratic people who continue to do what the world does, and that is to move away from God and to walk in darkness, and God bringing about a king and implementing a rule and reign to bring about God's law uh, for people. And so there's going to be an era of, of kingship, and that's going to highlight, obviously, Saul and then King David and, and then Solomon. And, of course, it all, that all descends as well because there is no human that can be king. I just want to, like, pause and, and say, wow, like, to think about God's people being fully sanctified, having the character and the nature of God completely enacting things that we think that the government should take care of now. Like, what what is heaven or new earth going to be like? And if we're all like that, and, you know, and then Jesus will be king in there, but we already have all of those things. Are we going to need, like, laws and, and decrees and other things to, to control how people do those? Or we're just going to exude it from the character and the, that we already have? because we look like Jesus through sanctification. Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. And that is the question that a lot of people end up with when we get into like the eschatological views and what is the kingdom of heaven and what is the thousand year reign of Christ and what is the overlap between the rule and reign of Jesus on the earth with fallen humanity or post uh, return of Christ and everything is set right and we're all glorified. What's, what's the difference there? 
And so uh, I'm of the persuasion of a realized millennialism that the, the thousand year reign of Christ is a reference to Jesus ruling from heaven over uh, a submitted people in the church age. And so the f- I would see more figurative language of some of the things like, you know, the lion and the lamb laying together and children playing with adders and snakes and and uh, uh, sinners living up to be 100 years. It's a picture of like the blessing that is brought through more and more and more people following Jesus in the earth. And so there is this period of time where there's this, you know, there's still corrupt people being born. There's still the activity of the enemy. He's still seeking uh, to destroy, but he isn't able to deceive the nations. Uh, the truth of the gospel reaches everywhere and uh, the enemy has no power against it. And so there is gonna be a final consummation where all things will be set right. And this is the age in which we are seeking to bring kingdom light everywhere we go. And so there's a tension uh, as us in the world. And so we have that in the scripture, but there's also the world in us and the tension between us in the spirit and the flesh. And so we're all fighting in this experience of going, okay, I'm gonna, I wanna live for God, by the spirit, walk by the spirit. And the law is love, um, you know, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We go through the whole list and what is Paul, Paul saying in Galatians, against such things there is no law. When you have a world filled with people with a whole brand new heart who love one another, you really don't need a lot of laws. You don't need to restrain evil because there isn't any. You don't need to promote good because everyone's looking for ways to, to be good. And that's what the, the future age is supposed to look like. Now, people have a different eschatological viewpoint, which is totally fine if you do. Um, you would see that completely differently. You would see a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the removal of all Christians through the rapture, a revival of Israel, a fulfillment of God's promises, and Jesus reigning from Jerusalem and people still converting to Christianity by following him, even though they can see him and faith isn't required, all kinds of different ways that people view that. And those aren't things that I believe, but a lot of people do. But there's a tension there between okay, where is the influence of Jesus through humans on the earth in this age? And then what will it look like when all of us are under the absolute influence of God in the age to come? Yeah, I think like regardless of your uh, your end times views or whether you're a dispensational or covenantial theology, like you right now, Jesus dwells in you and he's making you more like him. Yes. And why wouldn't you just exude that right now? Like, yeah, let it let it just go and flow like we normally do, like throughout throughout your day, throughout your commute, throughout your whatever you're doing and all that you do, do unto as unto the Lord. Like he's the direct recipient of what you're doing and you don't have to wait. And it doesn't matter what you're, you know, whether you believe that the Lord's coming back, whether you're full preterist and, you know, we're, we've already arrived. Like those are things that you can do, whatever amount of God dwells in you now. Let it just flow out into the community and can't wait till like the end when when Jesus like rules or however that looks for you. But like, you know, to think that God's people are representing him in full character of who he is. And if there's an application for this conversation, which has been kind of mer- just kind of meandering through philosophy and science and history and these passages and so on, uh, the application, I think, Bill, that you're spot on, like we are ambassadors of God now. We are ambassadors for Christ now. We we are the physical representation of Christ in the earth. Christ is the head. We are the body. We're the hands and feet. We are the presence of God to the world. And how we live is of utmost importance. And so if we end up with a detached theology that is fixated on information and understanding, but divorced from love of brother and self-sacrifice and following Jesus by faith and doing whatever he asks and seeing everything we have as only entrusted to our care and reporting to the good shepherd every single day. Absolutely. Like I, I would, you give me 10 people who will do whatever it is that they know 
and they are better than a thousand people who know and don't do anything. And so know everything and don't do anything. And so, yeah, absolutely. We, we, we have to, we have to embody that. Like that is the call of the Christian. More important than thinking about all these interesting things and exploring them and comparing them is recognizing why we are here and what we are called to do. And so we want to bring the kingdom of heaven every day into our own hearts. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That starts right here in this heart, in this mind, in these words, in my actions, in my interactions with other people. And if if we are, we are doing that, the light of of God's love begins to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. And I believe overtake overtake the darkness. And I think that's that's the plan of God and the reason why this is all taking so long. <laughs> that was beautiful. So that's why uh, we get this evil of Lot. Um, also, just some interesting information about um, ancient Near Eastern culture. And for people who travel in the Near East and in the Middle East now, um, hospitality is like a really important feature. And a lot of this has to do this great evil is not just the the sexual assault and the homosexuality that is being put on display in Sodom and Gomorrah, which it is, but it's also this concept of, hey, th- these men have come into my home and they are under my care. And so this is a great evil done to them. Um, and so it's terrible that Lot's impulse is to push his daughters, which he perceives as his own property, um, and to be sexually abused by this horde of, of angry men. But you also see like his ethic, his ethic is the protection of his guests. Do you see that? And so he has a very skewed ethic. He has a very uninformed ethic, but it is one that highlights the great evil of Sodom was not only, um, was not only their you know, uh, sexual sin and their violence, but it was also their inhospitable nature and the, the, their arrogance uh, toward outside cultures. And so that's, that's highlighted a lot. And you'll see that in and um, a lot of the commentaries if you if you study that portion. And of course, God destroys both of those two cities. And later, Tyre and Sidon and other cities as well in judgment. And so where great evil exists, the judgment of God comes. And we see that in Genesis 6, and we see that in the Lot story as well. Um, and then, you know, the, the, whole, the whole story is also, it's a contrast between good and evil, light and darkness. And that is highlighted in a number of different ways as the story is being developed, right? So um, we're getting multiple layers of meaning. And one of the layers that's just very obvious through all these place names and birth stories and genealogies is God is fulfilling his promise to bring about a savior for the world that is going to come from the seed of the woman. And so you're following a genealogy, a family line from Noah through Shem, through Eber to Abram to Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and the nation of Israel as a picture of God's presence on the earth and a people of God among a people without God. All of these things are working together and you follow that storyline. It's it's justifying the giving of the promised land, the judgment against the Canaanites. Um, that, that's the whole story with Noah and his sons, uh, Ham, who is the son of Canaan, and um, Shem, who is the son of Eber. And you're getting like, okay, the Canaanites are are acting like their father Ham and they're doing these evil things and the judgment against them is that their land is taken from them and the the faithful and the honoring of God's purposes um, embodied in Shem's son Eber, the father of the Hebrews, ends up being the justification for their being placed in the promised land. And so this is very geopolitical and it's following a whole storyline. You're going to see that in the judges and kings, the justification for a king, even though God had said he would be their king. And all of these things, you, I mean, if you were a, if you were a um, cynic, you would say this is propaganda. This is just setting up a reason why we should have this land or have this power be in this position. Um, and it's, it's fulfilling that purpose. It's showing that story. But in the midst of that story, it's also showing 
the brokenness of humanity and even how God's good guys aren't good guys and they do the wrong things and you can have faith mixed with fear and you can have obedience and disobedience and you can have rejection and repentance and so all these themes are continuing to to play out and so that's what we see in the Judah and Tamar story where um, you know Judah who who receives really one of the only blessings from Jacob at the end of Genesis which we just read in our in our Bible reading um, the, the, the quote-unquote blessings of Jacob over his son, some of them were quite atrocious. They were more curses than blessings. Um, but Judah is, is forecast to be the, the father of the tribe who the scepter will not leave from, and like a lion's cub. And so you see these, these elements that play forward. He's kind of like the good son. He's the youngest son of Leah. And um, in the genealogy that leads to Jesus, you're going to find uh, his daughter-in-law, Tamar, um, and Tamar was married to Judah's third son, and God killed his first two sons because they were straight evil. So you get a picture of that same judgment that comes later in the story with Hophni and Phinehas and um, Ananias and Sapphira and where the presence of God is at work and there's evil being done. There's more immediate judgment and death. Um, and so um, Tamar is left without a husband. And and so um, the, the law is later going to say that a, a brother of her husband should give her a child so that his line, line continues, but that wouldn't be that brother's child. It would be his dead brother's child. And so nobody wants to do that. And so um, the story is about how uh, Tamar pretends to be a prostitute and is impregnated by Judah. And, and then when she's found to be pregnant, um, the, out, the outcry against her unrighteousness is a death penalty. And yet um, Judah says she's more righteous than I am. Um, because he didn't do for her what was right in her eyes, or was right in God's eyes, actually. And so you're getting these these pictures of what is good and what is bad, and the progeny and the blessing and the care for the vulnerable, and um, and you're seeing a real um, hypocritical standard in in this misogynistic patriarchal environment where men can do whatever they want and it's not considered wrong. Visit a prostitute. That's just a thing men do. But if a woman ends up pregnant who's not married, uh, we're just going to burn her. And so, like, if you're a, a woman, um, you don't have to even be a feminist to be insulted <laughs> at this story. But that's the point. That is the clear point of the story is to is to show the incongruency in the ethic there, and that God brings that about and shows that to Judah publicly, really shaming him for uh, his activity. What is in the darkness will be brought to light, and through his signet ring and staff, which Tamar still has in her possession, if you read the story. He's outed, and um, so she doesn't die, and in fact, um, she becomes part of the, the holy lineage, which is really beautiful. So those are some of the, the questions we've been asked so far, and I want to kind of transition here towards um, something that's in my heart and that I thought about preaching and that I decided not to, um, and that we talked about in staff meeting yesterday, and that is the Jacob story. Um, so the the kind of focus of the, the questions are around this scene where Jacob wrestles a man um, all night by the river Jabbok, and there's some ambiguity about who is this he's wrestling, and who does he think he's wrestling, and is this God, and is this a man, is this some kind of Christophany or theophany, is this, like, what is, this is really strange, right? So it's a really strange story. Um, if you if you read it, you may have thought, oh, this is this is weird. And it is weird. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense. And sometimes we have this impulse to go, oh, that was weird, and just move on. And if it doesn't negatively affect our own faith, then we go, okay, just nothing for me to get there, and I just go on to something that makes more sense. Um, but it's important that you read those stories. For other people, like these are the kind of things that become a real hindrance to their belief system. And they go, this is just crazy. Like This doesn't make any sense, and this is like fantasaical, and there's no way this could have happened. And But you got to remember, this is literature. 
And this is telling a story and it's building upon what's already happened and it's forecasting towards what will happen. And the stories, very, very well-written stories, are always communicating a moral. They're always showing you meaning, deeper, deeper meaning. And so you need to like let, let down maybe some of the, the little red flags that are going off in your head and just start to ask the question of like, what uh, is going on here and why? And um, if, you, if you do that with a sincerity of heart, you'll recognize that uh, Jacob's story is one of um, a real sense or a loss of sense of identity, right? So you have God's promise to Abraham fulfilled in Isaac and not Ishmael. And so Isaac, is, Isaac is, knows who he is, knows why he's here, knows the story. His, his story is kind of um, eclipsed a little bit and gives way to Jacob and Esau. But in Jacob's story, um, juxtaposed to Esau, who's the firstborn, from his very birth, he's coming out with his hand on the heel, and he's the he's given the name, you know, the snitch or the the snatcher, or the supplanter, the deceiver, this trickster. Like his name literally means like ne- a negative thing. And then Esau, who's preferred by his father and in all ways superior physically and um, socioeconomically as a hunter, and you know, he's said to be an outdoorsman and strong and hairy and like the epitome of masculinity and everything that the world would look at and say, this is the guy. And Jacob is said to be, you know, indoorsy and likes to be in the kitchen and somewhat of a mommy's boy and also deceitful and untrustworthy. <laughs> like this is what is set up. And so he's living in this life with this name and in this environment. Um, and he uses his skills as a as a chef to um, prey upon his um older brother who's arrogant and despises his birthright. And so you get the story of him stealing the, the birthright. And then when it comes time to pass along the, the God-ordained blessing, the generational blessing, not just a generic blessing, not just a before I die, this is the blessing that rested on Adam and Eve, the blessing that was recapitulated to Noah, the blessing that was promised to Abraham, the blessing that Abraham uh, gave to Isaac that God reestablished through an appearance This is the blessing Isaac's been carrying his whole life, and now near the end of his age, he is ready to pass that on to Esau. And so you get the story of um, Rebekah working to go around uh, Isaac's wish to uh, give this blessing to Esau and instead to get it to Jacob. And so now Jacob's being manipulated by his mother. He's participating in the the deceit. Um, He's nervous. He's saying he has all these objections, but he goes along with it. And he steals, essentially, not only the birthright, but the blessing, the divine blessing from his father. And he evokes the the murderous rage and vengeance of his brother. And his mother sends him to live with her brother far away, uh, which is where his story picks up. And at this point, you know, he's at the mercy of Laban, and he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he gets in this arrangement to work for seven years, and then he gets tricked. And so the trickster gets tricked. And he ends up with Leah, and after seven days of her her bridal period of, of being the one wife, he takes his um, her sister who he loves, and now he has two wives, and they're constantly at odds with each other. And he's over and over and over and over again taken advantage of by Laban. And God continues to intervene to bless him regardless of all of this calamity. And so he decides that Laban's only going to try to steal from him and own everything and take everything. There is no future for him with Laban. And so he sneaks off with all of his possessions and his wives and his children, and he decides he's going to go home and he's going to face Esau, his brother. The reason he's with Laban is because of Esau. So it's gotten so bad with Laban that it's preferable to him to face the unknown of his brother Esau. But you have to remember, the last encounter with his brother, he's expecting to be killed. 
And so he's heading back towards his brother and you can see this angst and this anxiety and he receives the report that his brother is coming to him with 400 men. Okay, this is not a welcoming committee. This is only interpretable as an army. So Esau, mad as hell, 400 men and he's ready to slay Jacob and all of Jacob's possessions and people. And so if you've ever had a tense situation, if you've ever been up all night sleepless and praying, um, this is what happens at the river Jabbok. So Jacob does what any rational human who's afraid would do. He puts himself at the back of the line because he's the hot point of vengeance. He puts the weak in front of him, hopefully to elicit some sympathy from um, the rage of his brother and these armies of men. He also divides his camp in half and half so that, you know, if one of them is attacked, he has, you know, he's protecting his progeny. And then he pushes them ahead of them and then he goes by this river. Now again, if you read some of these ancient Near Eastern texts, there's a common motif of these river gods and the, the character. Um, you're going to see this with like Osiris and Set. There's going to be this match, this struggling match, and who prevails and who gets the blessing, who ends up in the proper place. And so you've got Jacob beating Esau out of his birthright. You've got Jacob beating Esau out of his blessing. And now the question is, who's going to, who's going to win in this, this fight that's coming up? But in this story, instead of it being brother fighting brother, what you're going to see is Jacob wrestling this mysterious man. And, you know, the different people have thought, okay, this is a vision, this is a dream. It doesn't present itself that way in the story. It's a very physical encounter. And at the river, this, this, uh, this struggle, this wrestle happens. And then the sun begins to come up. The break of dawn is there. And the man whom Jacob is wrestling says, like, you better let go of me. The sun's coming up and not before you bless me, and what is your name is the response, and Jacob, I'm Jacob. He says, no, from now on, you're going to be Israel, which means Israel is to contend with or strive with God, struggle with God, and you're going to be called Israel because you have contended with both man and God, and so you're, you're brought into this identity crisis that Jacob has experienced his whole life. He's always identified himself with a, a stealer, a snatcher, um, trying to get for himself. Even when God appeared to him uh, when he fled Esau in the, the Jacob's ladder story. Jacob has this dream and he sees a ladder and angels coming and going and he calls the place gate of heaven, right? Home of, home of God, city of God, place of God. And so there's this picture of like, oh, there's this porthole in his, in his mind. There's a portal between heaven and earth in this specific place, Bethel. That's the perception that he has. It was just the place in which he encountered God and got a vision of what God was doing through his lineage, and that was to bring heaven and earth back together. So he didn't understand it. And after God reaffirmed the blessing that he was, that he was partner in stealing, God reaffirms that he's with him. Uh, Jacob begins to make all these promises. I'm going to do this. As long as you do what you just said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And you see Jacob just trying to take control of his own blessing. He sees himself as um, the one who is responsible for his well-being and for things happening. And he, he's, he you just imagine clenched fists, not only trying to um, contend with people to, to look out for himself, but now he's trying to, to, to wrench this out of God's hands. And this finds its epitome now 20 years later when he's wrestling this enigmatic figure at the river's edge. Now, a couple things. If you read that, you may have thought, okay, it appears like Jacob is beating God, or at least on par with God and God's like, please let me go. Like you're like, you got to let me go. Um, we, we, we know that over and over and over again already in the Genesis story, um, there's these anthropomorphisms of God. He is, he is given human terms to explain what is divine. 
And so we talked about God walking. We've seen God's eyes. We've seen God's voice. There's been these ways in which God, who is spirit and other, intersects with humanity in a way that takes on human form. And sometimes that comes all the way into the form of an actual physical person. Um, and you go back to the, the Genesis story of the forecast birth of Isaac. It says three men appeared to Abraham. Remember this? And so, okay, is this supposed to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Is this God? Is this God and two angels? There was some uncertainty there. You're, if you remember reading it, you may have noticed that God in uh, Adonai in the complete Jewish Bible is talking to Abram about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says two angels arrive in the city. And so there were three, and it appears that one of them stays back to talk to, to Abraham as a friend, and that's God, and the other two were angels accompanying him. And so was that the three? It's a little ambiguous there in the story, but the point is again and again and again, you get these appearances of God, whether it's in a dream or in a vision or as a person or as a voice, and they vary in their expression. But this, this particular one is very physical, and that's on purpose. So this, this man, unknown to Jacob at the time, but at the end of this wrestling match, after he receives this blessing and the, the man disappears, he, he says, he calls the place Penuel, face of God. I've seen the face of God. Now, God says, if, if it is God, which is what we're expecting, God says, let me go. For the sun comes up, right? Now you have to imagine in the ancient Near East, in the desert, there is no ambient light. And so if you are struggling in the dark, you cannot see who you are fighting with. Think about that for a second. Maybe at best you get a full moon that would shed some light, but in the darkness, in the ancient Near East, you may be having your hands on this very kind of like contentious but intimate uh, interaction between Jacob and God, where they're right on top of each other, gripping each other, perhaps even face-to-face, but unable to see. And God here says, like, let me go. And if you understand, this is this is God protecting Jacob for when you see the face of God, there could be instant judgment. Now, he doesn't, he says he sees the face of God. Actually, he says, came face-to-face with God in the actual language there. And then, of course, this ties into the interaction he has with Esau when Uh, he and his brother are finally reunited, he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. The point here, though, of this whole story is it's a pivot point from Jacob's life as a supplanter, as a deceiver, as a trickster, as a contender with man and God his entire life to having his name changed. There's an identity shift that happens here. Here's a person who at the the point of complete vulnerability He's, he doesn't know if he's going to be slaughtered, if his wives and children are going to be killed, if all of his possessions are going to be taken. He knows what he deserves. He knows what he's done wrong. He doesn't have control of the situation. He is at the lowest point in his life and completely vulnerable. And then he has this interaction with God. But instead of accessing that vulnerability and that dependence and that faith, he lays his grip into God to hang on to him, to try to get something from him, a God who he cannot overpower. And yet God's not overpowering him. He's interacting with him, but he's giving him this moment. And and what's the result of this interaction? God touches his hip and pops his hip out of joint. And now this guy who is already in weakness is now limping, dragging his leg from from where he has encountered God to a place of complete vulnerability before his greatest fear. And it's it's a moment it's a moment when um, it's it's a, you call it a come to Jesus moment. It's the moment when Jacob is having to realize who he has been and yet who God has chosen him to become. 
and to accept from God what God has called him into. And so he carries with him for the rest of his life the sign of his struggle with God, and it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of injury. And this is why it becomes, they mentioned in the text that this is why the, the Jews don't eat that tendon connected to the hip because that's the hip that God touched. And so there's this memorial that travels from this moment forward into God's people that this is something special. And the invitation for us as we read this is to realize like we are being invited into something by God to walk with God and his blessing comes to us. It's not something we can control. And in as much as Jacob sneaks and deceives in order to grasp and hold on to this blessing that he so badly desires and his mother wants for him. Um, God's always been, God chose him. God loved him. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Uh, God preferred Jacob to Esau on purpose, and Jacob never had to do any of those things to obtain the blessing that God had chosen for him. And he learned that at the river Jabbok. There's a little play on words there too in Hebrew. Jacob and Jabbok are the same consonants, but in a different order. And Jabbok means to stagger. And so this is the the point in the story uh, where Moses chooses to record for us where Jacob finally has his his change of heart, his dependence upon God. He gives up control. He walks with a limp, and and God does the miraculous. He, He comes to find out that Esau's heart is completely changed towards him. And the two brothers are united and there's peace among them. And both of them actually are under the favor of God, even though the blessing of God and the calling of God to bring about Messiah is going to follow through the line of Israel and not through the line of Edom. And that's kind of the point of the story. I also think it's like really um, interesting that, uh, you know, Israel, meaning content, one who contends with God, becomes like the nation of Israel. They didn't become the nation of Abraham. I mean, they were from Abraham, but... And following the promise of Abraham, but they were the nation of Israel. And then you'll we'll see as we continue our Bible reading that they do contend with God throughout throughout all of Scripture. You know, up right up to through Malachi, they're they're contending consistently, contending with God, even though they've been entrusted with you know we'll see like the Ten Commandments, the presence of God, like all of these things that God chooses to interact and love them. And they continue, yet even though they have all of that, they still contend with him. Yeah, it's amazing. Yep. And it it highlights what the story highlights, and that is what we see in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, is that uh, there is no perfect person. There's only faith in God. And there is no perfect people. There's only those who are transformed by God. And so we always have a remnant, even though Israel, the nation, becomes stiff-necked and hard-hearted and rejects God again and again and again, despite cycles of, of, um, of uh, judgment and exile and return and revival, that God continues to maintain for himself a remnant of people who are not perfect but are, are faithful. But he brings about the revelation that there will not be a nation, there will not be a people, there are not humans that can that can function in this covenant relationship with God and fulfill it. And in this new covenant expression, God's gonna fulfill that promise of Genesis 3.15, and he is going to come, God with us, Emmanuel, the perfect man, the new Adam, the real Israel of God, the seed of Abraham, the faithful one and the trusting one, the one who walks with God, the real Enoch, the, the power of the prophet Elijah, the king after David, he is going to epitomize in every form that we see develop in the Old Testament, and that's going to all come together in the person of Jesus, 
who fulfills every foreshadow. I mean, the lamb, the, the sacrifice, atonement, forgiveness, the high priest, uh, the prophet, the king, all of those elements are going to come together in Jesus, and it's through faith in him that allows us to be cleansed and to have a new heart and to become the temple of God's Holy Spirit and to access the power to trust God, to rest in God, and then to work with God in supernatural ways, superhuman ways. But that looks a lot different than we might think that it does. And so this is the invitation. We're, we're just early in the story, in, in the birth of this nation, but this is the invitation for us to come and to put our trust in God's Messiah, in God's uh, perfect man. And in so doing, we are united with him, not in a wrestling match, not in a, a death grip that we must hold on in order to maintain, but we are falling back into loving arms and following the voice of a good shepherd and being yoked to Jesus with new power and new purpose and by God's spirit now living as a new type of people, a new type of Israel, a new type of light and darkness. And that's deeply individual and personal, but it's also collective and holistic. And so um, this is the invitation. Now, here's a little sneak peek. We're getting into next week. And we're going to be looking at the Joseph story and the Exodus story. And so the Joseph story brings us into Egypt with 70 people. And then the Exodus story brings us out with a million plus people. And so this is the story of the birth of a nation and the violence of rebirth and the um, the new life and the new presence and awareness of God. And there's a lot of really cool features in there. So be looking for those. And that's going to culminate in the tabernacle and all the elements of the tabernacle that express what it looks like for God to be with man in shadow form. So that's where we're going. And uh, look forward to the reading with you. Let me say a prayer for us and uh, we'll close this up. God, we thank you for your word uh, in all of its brilliance. Lord, all the questions we have and all the thoughts that we have, uh, Lord, you, you never let us down. There's always far, far, far more than we can even get our minds around. And so we just thank you for this time as we thought about these things and considered them. And we thank you for the clarity that we have looking back because of who you have revealed yourself to be in Jesus. And so, Lord, as we follow you, King Jesus, and as we study you and learn from you and, and live like you, we just pray that you would give us eyes to see how you have brought all this about and, um, and, the, and the lessons that we should learn along the way about good and evil and faith and, and trust and rest and, and seeing your good purposes and sorting out the difference between um, what's the role of this and that. And Lord, there's so much wisdom to be experienced. And so I just pray for everybody who's following along in this Binging the Bible series. God, I pray that we would just find deep treasures from your word day after day after day. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Bye.